0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilden Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition.
0: This legacy
2: of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial
0: injustice. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers.
1: Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston. Today,
2: I'm with Angela Alonso, who's a former uh, GLC fellow. Uh, she's a professor of sociology at the University of Sao Paulo, the president of the Brazilian Center of Analysis and Planning, and the author of a book on the generation of 1870 in Brazil, uh, and a biography of Joaquin Nabucco, the writer and abolitionist. And Her latest book project is titled Flowers, Votes, and Bullets, the Brazilian Movement for the Abolition of Slavery, 1868 to 1888. Uh, Angela, it's a pleasure to have you here.
0: Well, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure.
2: Now, let me. Uh, uh, I had a chance to hear a little about your project, and you you look at the abolitionist movement from two angles. One is the way that it forms connections as a movement nationally and locally, and through sometimes previously existing networks, and some that are formed uh, through struggle. But the other uh, part that you look at is the way that it draws on the work of of the global abolitionist mm-hmm. movement. Could you say a little uh, more about about this strategy?
0: Sure. Uh, when I, I started to, to study abolitionism, I noticed that, especially when I was here in in, in the um, jails center. Thank you. Uh, uh, I, I, I listened to many people talking about other abolitionist experiences, and I saw very, lots of similarities um, with the Brazilian case. And I started to pay attention on that, and because um, Brazilian case has been studied as a kind of is- isolated case for a long time. but So I, I, I paid attention on the connections, and I started to see especially how... Brazilians relied on this international experience in two ways. On one hand, they uh, learned from previous experience. So they used these previous experiences of how to do the campaign, so um, how to set the arguments. And so it's this kind of uh, former experience that worked as a repertoire to them that they could pick up strategies to use in their campaign. But in another way, they also rely on this international uh, experience in a more, um, in a thing that would seem as a more contemporary to us nowadays, that is. Um, building a network with other activists abroad in order to use their help to pressure the Brazilian government. So they established connections with uh, British, American, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, activists around the world that would have had an experience similar of their their own and could use uh, these connections to pressure the Brazilian government. Well, uh, that seems
2: so interesting to me. That uh, the the way in which they're uh, reaching out uh, to other people. Could you give me an example of some of the some of the people and organizations that they're
0: in contact with during this time? Oh, for instance, they were in in touch. Joaquín Abouk, one of the main abolitionists, he he had a long relationship with the the British and slavery British slavery society, and they also had connections with the Sociedad abolicionista uh, in Spain, uh, they had a relationship with Victor Schellscher in in Paris. So they started uh, contacting former abolitionists because in, in many of those countries, the ab- abolition was done, actually. Right. But the abolitionists were still alive or doing other campaigns. So they connect with those uh, abolitionists, And besides that, they also looked for the support of other authorities. Uh, for instance, uh, um, Glad- William Gladstone, the, f- the first minister in, in England, the Pope, at mm-hmm. a certain point, they went to the Pope to, to look for support. And so it was a, a, a continuous strategy of looking for foreign support. Now it's the challenge of any historian to decide
2: where to begin and end uh, their story, and and so why? Uh, what is it about eighteen sixty-eight mm-hmm. uh, that strikes you as a as a good place to start this story?
0: Actually, I started this investigation where everybody started before, in 1879, because that was the uh, usual narrative about abolition in Brazil. But then I started to read the newspapers, the, the speech in parliament, and I understood that they were all the time talking about something that started before. And so I started to go back and back and back. And I decided that I would uh, take as my start point not discourses on abolition, but um, formal associations that would declare or present themselves as anti slavery associations. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that, uh, uh, their existence in the late 60s. And then I went to, to that point of time in order to understand what was going on. And I, I discovered that three things set uh, the the conditions to to this first anti-slavery uh, cycle in, in Brazil. Uh, one of them, I think, the most important one, was the change in the international environment. Since uh, um, Brazil was a, a huge slave country, but he it it was not alone. Uh, you right, uh, you, right. U.S., Cuba, and Puerto Rico had huge slavery systems working as well. But when they started to fall apart, so Brazil had this feeling, Brazilian um, politicians, that they would uh, be alone in the civil civil side. Right, as they were Exactly. And so that pushed a a debate inside the, the country. And the second factor is that because of that debate the the, the political part Paris, is split in two positions one for um, some some measure about that not the abolition itself but something as gradual abolition of slavery and another uh, politicians decide to just resist to it to postpone it for for as long as possible and so those modernized ones started to do conferences and in in using the public space to to protest so this this uh, new situation showed to people that were against slavery that they could organize and present themselves in the public space and 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 finally at that at this point they started to organize associations. association so i i trace i traced. Uh, 25 associations uh, organized against uh, slavery at this point in, in Brazil.
2: What sort of associations are these 25?
0: Well, they were mostly organized by members of the political elite themselves or for people in one way or another connected to to, to them. Uh, but some, some of them were organized by women. Ah. And some of them were organized uh, uh, by black people, and so since the beginning, the movement the movement was very diversified in in its composition, and and very uh, spread out in the country. The, those associations appeared not just in the capital, Rio de Janeiro, at this point, but in many parts in the south and the north.
2: Now in. The United States and Great Britain. It was often the uh, uh, religious organizations that are uh, the backbone backbone to the abolitionist movement, and they use uh, the language of uh, slavery and anti-slavery is often couched in religious terms. In in uh, Brazil, however, the Catholic Church, uh, in many ways, is aligned with the slaveholders mm-hmm. and the kind of conservative uh, opposition to the abolitionist movement. So. How do they, how do, how, do, how does the abolitionist movement there? What do they use as their kind of moral underpinning? And how do they mm-hmm. kind of uh, build an alternative
0: to that kind of—a
2: kind of, secular alternative mm-hmm. to that?
0: Well, so when they started the, the campaign, they were looking for models to, to, to do it. And they, they look at, uh, at the models available, especially to the British, the American, but also to the Spain uh, campaign. And, and they were trying to figure it out how to, to make it uh, appealing to the public op- op- opinion. And in, as you said, religion was very important in the, the British uh, and American case. Uh, but in Brazil, it was impossible to use the church as a, as a space, a physical space for the campaign. Or right. and, and even the religious language because the Catholic Church was so connected with the the this, uh, this state that was supporting slavery that it was not uh, a good strategy in the end. So they decided to place uh, the campaign in a secular space and they look at the, the, the theater to do that. So they started to do a campaign that was more um, art artistically oriented and so they use poems and and they uh, have singers opera singers uh, people uh, playing piano or doing some kind of recitals so it was a kind of show in, in the first part always with some kind of uh, Thematic uh, relationship with the subject, right. and after that, the abolitionists would do the, their political speeches. So it was a an strategy that they called conference concert.
2: And that, so this is the era, uh, the the stage in the abolitionist movement that in your title, uh, this is the flower, then exactly. the, the flowers that you're using, and and. and and what is its effect? I mean where what happens? How do they kind of transition from this uh, movement, which seems like in some ways to not have the church, not have the political system, not have uh, a lot of the familiar structures in society, but relying mm-hmm. on the theater, which mm-hmm. is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. How do they go from that to the the uh, ballot stage that mm-hmm. you talk about? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they, they were doing those conference concerts, and I called the disface flowers because in the end of the, those shows, they would uh, give freedom letters to, to some slaves, and people would throw flowers over them. So that's a, a, a how they, they, they work at that point without uh, um, going against the state. They were doing that by buying freedom certificates. But that was a very limited limited uh, strategy. Right. So they, they started to nationalize that, that strategy. But uh, at a certain point, when they they were um, growing and, and appearing publicly, they decided to go to another strategy based on the American model again uh, to build a kind of free soil in Brazil. Since in Brazil there was not a Canada or without slavery, that they could send the, the, the free ones to there, they decided to create a free soil in Brazil. And so they chose one part of the country where there was a huge support, a local movement very well organized, and few slaves. And mm. so they declared this part of the country uh, freed of slavery. They bought many uh, freedom certificates, or they persuaded uh, slave owners to concede uh, freedom certificates, and they declared Sierra free of slavery in 1884. Uh, did, and the, uh, the
2: political power by this time, were they supportive of, of this action? Was the governor and other members of?
0: Yeah, the, the local uh, governor, the president of province, that's the he he was an abolitionist himself. Yeah. So he supported that, but not the national government, and then it caused a crisis, a political crisis, and that came the time of uh, of the ballots, because then the the political system answered that uh, growing of mobilization, saying, "Well, now it's time for uh, uh, some reformist measure," and this has to be done as well because uh, the international system, uh, the international scenario was uh, constantly changing so now United States didn't have sla- have hasn't have slavery anymore and Cuba and Puerto Rico were uh, um, Putting a uh, uh, de- defining a deadline for slavery as well, so Brazil uh, f- uh, had to do something again. So they are pressured externally and pressured internally by the the the, the growing of mobilization. And then a reformist government took office with uh, an abolitionist program, very moderated one, but an abolitionist program in the, on the national level. At oh, the national level, yeah, with the support of the movement. Uh huh.
2: And so what are some so now we've entered the ballot stage where where in a sense they have limited political power. How are how do they use that, that political power then to kind of move the movement forward?
0: Well they they um, helped the the government to write the project of evolution which included some rights for the, the free men, uh, some land reform and evolution of course. And they also did campaign the newspapers in support for the, the, this, this government. But, of course, there was opposition because all the time the movement was mobilized, the, there was also a counter-movement. The slaveholders were mobilizing as well. So the government was pressured by two sides. And so at this point, the government had to go to the polls to be um, supported by the public opinion, to go on with this, this abolitionist project. So at this point, the abolitionists went to the ballots because they presented themselves as, as candidate in the whole country in support to this uh, government.
2: Right. And what years are, are these, this uh, this uh, uh, period of, of exercising the ballot? It's in
0: 1884. The U.S. could be the year. right
2: that the, the year. This is the year that the 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 election. The, the
0: election have happened in December 1884, and and then they they lost the
2: election. Did, was this a surprise that they lost? Were they anticipating uh, a glorious victory?
0: Well, so so because it was this the the first um, electoral campaign in Brazil, and so they they thought that they would persuade the urban. Uh, um, to people to to vote for them because in in the cities they had a great support uh, built based on the theater events so so right. and, and in fact they succeeded in 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 some in, in the the major cities but the problem was not uh, the votes but how the process of um how do you call that uh, the results were counted. Oh, how they're counted! Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the government um, uh, lost the the the, pro- the control of the process of decision on who had been elected. Actually, you know, S- so they uh, it it's not fair to them to say that they lost in the ballots. They lost in the process of uh, recognizing of the elected. Who, right,
2: right. Uh, actually, that brings up an interesting. Uh, Question: Uh, Now, is there what form of suffrage is available in Brazil? Is it universal male suffrage or
0: uh... it it was not uh, universal? And actually, there there was a reform electoral reform in 1881 that restricted the the electorate because um, uh, they they there was also in Brazil uh, this limit. To vote, you had to present some uh, income, mm. but it was so so slow that everybody could vote. But with this reform in 1881, uh, you you had to present some um, well declaration of income that reduced the the, the electorate. So what the abolitionists thought, well, now they they are less less people to persuade and most of them would be in the city, so we have a chance. Right.
2: But but on the other hand, by by this new legislation uh, that that required you to show more more money or more property, what, who was pushing? That was the conservative uh, opposition that was pushing for that?
0: Actually, the liberals were in favor of that Why? reform. Because they thought that the conservative had this hero basis, that they would control, oh. and that the the urban uh, electors would be more uh, free, uh, self-oriented, or would right. be able cosmopolitan to cosmopolitan. Exactly, exactly. Right. yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, so, so they uh, they suffered a discouraging defeat in 1884, uh, and not to give away the ending, uh, it's 1888. Uh, of course. Uh, uh, Abolition, uh, universal uh-huh. abolition. So, how do you go from this tremendous setback to, yeah. to in a few short years, uh, uh, a victory of sorts?
0: Yeah, the setback was huge because not just they lost, but the new gov- government was a pro-slavery government. Right. And and this government started to repress the abolitionists. And so most of the kind of strategies they have been using, like the conference concerts, the free soil strategy, they couldn't do that openly anymore. So they decided that since they were um, under violence, they would also go to civil disobedience. And they started again to rely on the American model, so the Underground Railroad, and they started to help slaves to run away, to organize oriented runaways, and to send them to Ceará, this province they had right, uh, right. they had freed. And so they started to uh, uh, create a, a kind of civil uh, disorder in the country. And at a certain point, uh, the, the, the crisis in 1887, uh, it it was a hard situation f- in in the country because they were very radicalized doing that in the whole country actually and the government uh, was repressing them and so parts of the the political elite and even the social elites uh, the church uh, for instance they they um, had the fear that brazil would have the same um, situation of the United States and to go into civil war. Right. So the abolitionists themselves declared that many times. And there was one, one newspaper uh, of the abolitionists that said that we are going to civil war. So so they were preparing their, their, themselves to to, to that.
2: But of course, they had the benefit of history. They could see that... Consequences of the American Civil War, or the Haitian Revolution, and uh, these were things that they did not want to see in, visited on
0: exactly in, in in Haiti as well the the slave rebellion. So so parts of the political elite started to say, well, let's now um, do some kind of compromise, and and so many many sectors start to support not the program the abolitionist movement had as a whole. But the abolition in gradual ways. But what was really decisive was that the army, at a certain point, said in the end of 1887, they they said we are not going to to do this row anymore of going to pick up runaway slaves, and and so when the army refused, the government couldn't go on with the repression. They. So so at that point you had this kind of compromise between the um, among uh, all those elite sectors the church the judiciary the parties so they said okay let's do it Brazil is the last country with, with slavery it's time to finish let's let's do it in in a way that is uh, our way not the movement way
2: right so so they come up what are the terms uh, for uh, abolition that that or ended up that that we find in 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 May of 1888.
0: The process was very quick, so they decided the government, uh, the, the repressive government, um, f- fell apart in in February, 1888, and the abolition was made in May. So during those three months, they negotiated to do just abolition without compensation, but without any of the other reforms the movement was uh, fighting for. The movement was asking for land reform, for education, for rights for the the free men, and nothing of that passed. The law is very short. It has just one article saying that all the slaves... Are freed from this day on in in Brazil without compensations, just that law.
2: So this is very much like the america the U.S. model, uh, where there's a 13th Amendment that ends slavery, but lacking a 14th Amendment or a 15th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Is it? It's it's uh, as uh, Eric Foner titled one of his books, "Nothing but Freedom," uh, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that you receive. So in that situation with the government. Uh, falling apart, uh, what then replaces, is there, is there a, ref- when does reform come finally?
0: Well, this, this um, very repressive government finished, but then the new one was also conservative government. The government that did the abolition was not a liberal one, was a part of the, the conservative part that said, okay, we are going to do it. And so they controlled the process, and even people who was very uh, pro-slavery until months before were there in that government in order to control the process. And what they tried to do just after the abolition was to compensate the slave owners, not the ex-slaves.
2: Oh, so slave owners were compensated? For, no, they, uh, tried, they tried. They ah. tried to. Ah.
0: they gov- actually, it didn't work because the government didn't have the money to do it. Actually, there was a financial crisis, but they tried. There was a movement for indemnization in the Senate and in the House. Now, I, you know, I think I can't
2: kind of let you go without bringing up the uh, uh, the. the the thing that i think is very different in brazil is that uh is that for generations there are uh many many free people of color uh uh, uh some in, in in the military uh some wealthy businessmen so kind of throughout society uh there are people uh in very, you know in uh in some ways who are people of color how does that uh, how does that affect the abolitionist movement uh in brazil uh what is the what is the dynamic of having, uh, having really a multiracial uh, mm-hmm. uh, country uh, uh, in which there are no kind of clear uh, geographic uh, boundaries?
0: Yeah. Well, Brazil was a arist- aristocratic society at that point with a monarchy. And so I think the hierarchies were very defined in social terms. So you, you did not need the color to do this, mm. this line to work. So, you, you can see many um, uh, black men going up in, 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 in that society uh, with a social assumption. For instance, our man writer, Mashad Yassis, he was a black man. And he was very recognized as a as a writer. So you have many many people in the Brazilian society that made a career being black. Hmm. And the case of Andre Rebouças, who is the, the, my main character in this right. book, uh, and also, but also you have, for instance, José do Patrocínio, another abolitionist leader in the public space, who was the um, son of a priest and an ex-slave, and uh, and you have. Others that come uh, that were ex-slaves and came to be abolitionists. So you have a society that very diversified in terms of positions that black people could have. I think after the abolition, the racial issue came to be more important in Brazil because at this, uh, during during slavery you could say, well, I'm black but I'm free. Right. And after uh th- the finish of slavery was harder to to say who was who, and so color started to be more important right. to dis- distinguish people and are the
2: and the old hierarchies are crumbling as well, so that it yeah, becomes be- more so that you want something to distinguish people
0: yeah because one one year and a half after abolition, monarchy went down as well, so this high aristocratic uh, stratification. Felt apart as well, so race came to be important because the other criteria started to disappear.
2: Do those abolitionists, and this is a, a, a question uh, that's asked uh, in the states as well, is it? Do they continue to fight for civil rights and social justice uh, past this moment? Past? Do they see abolitionists or abolition of slavery? As uh, the end they're striving for? Or do they see that as simply a beginning? And, and what, do, what becomes of their careers uh, after, after 1888?
0: The movement was uh, big with many people, and they had different uh, reasons to be there fighting, you know? So some of them uh, had had in mind that their mission was to make the abolition, just that. Right. And so once made, they just started to do something else. For instance, Joaquin Nabucco was one of the main leaders, the parliamentary leader. But after abolition, he he fought uh, against the indemnization process for the the, the owners. But after that, he started another campaign for federation, for instance. So he engaged in something else. So many abolitionists were also republicans. And so once abolition was made, they started the Republican campaign. So I would say that few of them stayed, stayed really committed with the, the, the other ideas that they, they had been fighting for, uh, such as the rights for the, the ex slaves. But some of them would be, one of them, Vicente de Souza, for instance, would be the founder of the socialist party in Brazil. Um, Get. Some years late, but.
2: well, that actually brings me up to your yeah, the, your current research, which is uh, on the uh, demonstrations in Brazil in, in 2013 and mm-hmm. everything around that. And as a sociologist and as someone who's uh, who's been engaged in in this very uh, complicated uh, struggle in the uh, 18, 18 uh, 1870s and 1880s. How do you see the current moment? Do you see the same dynamics, uh, or at least uh, as far as networks and looking outside of the nation itself?
0: I, I think that the situations are very similar in some ways because if you take the, the demonstrations uh, since 2013 when they, they started, you can see a kind of similar of, uh, movement because in the beginning was uh, there was a huge demonstration that... Seemed to be something um, homogeneous, but I started my, my investigation at that point, and there was two huge regions of protest, two uh, two spaces, I would say, one uh, both against the government, but one for more rights and s- social rights, transportation, health, education, right. etc., and the other side for less state. Against, huh. against taxation uh, against uh, the, the the state intervention in private l- private life for instance gay marriage and things like that So you have two uh, sides condemning the the state by, but for different reasons and in the years that follow uh, they really split in different campaigns when campaign uh, that came to be a campaign more, not just against the state and for more liberal rights, but especially against corruption. And the other side came to be more condensated about this idea of social rights and, uh, and in favor of the, the Dilma's government to, to be continued. Right. So you, they, they split. So what, what was a huge mobilization in the, in the beginning came to be two groups, a movement and a counter movement you could say right. again.
2: Well and... uh Thanks so much for uh for, for being here and telling us about about your book and uh and especially I, I think that it's uh uh from the point of view of a look at, at, at movement groups and, and how movements succeed and how they uh deal with setbacks it's uh it's it's very informative and and very useful to the current moment here uh mm-hmm. and brazil and elsewhere uh so i'm uh uh excited uh to uh hear about the book and and hope that an english translation will be uh available at some point
0: yeah it's going to appear by Cam- cambridge UP. In- Two years, probably. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll probably, I'm sure we'll need it then, too. Uh, and
2: before I go, I was wondering uh, for our listeners if you could recommend any, uh, any further readings that uh, they might uh, look into uh, if they're interested in this subject.
0: Yeah, there are some, uh, um, not too many things available in English, but uh, Jeffrey Nidell has been working on the subject, so you can take a look on things that he's, he has been publishing. And also Celso Castillo, who has a good book on part of the abolitionist campaign in Pernambuco. Hmm. So there are, pe- there are many other works, but I would say that those are are, are people that you could pay attention. They have new... Uh, materials, new evidences about the topic. Well, Angela,
2: it's wonderful to have you back here at Yale, and uh, I hope you have safe travels, and thanks uh, for being here.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate that.
1: Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.